I'm Dean Jackson. He's Joe Polish. And this is the I Love Marketing Podcast. Jackson and Joe Polish. Joe, How's it going, Dean? It's going good. good. Very excited right. about tonight. Yes, tonight is going to be very exciting. We've got a a good friend, special guest, uh, someone you're going to learn a lot from in the next uh, in this episode. Um, so grab some notes if you're not driving, because I think you're going to learn some stuff. His name is Mark C. Thompson, and he is CEO and co-founder of Virgin Unite Mentors, which is Sir Richard Branson's network for executive coaching and entrepreneurial innovation, which is really interesting because Mark is actually on Necker Island right now doing this interview. He actually took a break from his trip on Necker to actually do an I Love Marketing episode. Uh, he's a leadership coach. He's a best-selling author. Uh, his current book, we're going to talk a lot about this. It's called Admired, 21 Ways to Double Your Value. It's with him and Bonita Thompson. And uh, it's number one on Amazon, as far as I know right now. I'll confirm that with Mark in just a moment. Uh, he's a venture capitalist. He's a Tony-nominated Broadway producer. He brings real-time solutions to today's leadership challenges. He's done a ton of stuff, and I'll mention some of that as we go along, but he's got a huge bio. And uh, anyway, Mark, can you hear us all right? I can, and thank you so much. Life is good. When you're on Necker, it, it has to be great, but it's such an honor to be with you guys. You're doing such great work in helping people just energize their businesses, so it's such a pleasure to be with you guys. Absolutely. And you, you've written some awesome books. I mean, you, you wrote you. Uh, Now uh, Build a Great Business with uh, our friend Brian Tracy, right. uh, Success Built to Last, uh, Creating the Life that Matters, um, and your, you know, now your new book, which is Admired. Um, and, and Dean, is there anything you want to say before I start, you know, rad, you know rambling on here? Here we are. This is great because Mark's good friends with Tony Robbins. And Tony, yeah. when we did, uh, we had Tony on a few weeks ago. He was calling in from the Mali, from Fiji. And here now we've got Mark <laughs> from Necker Island. And we're like, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. This is life is exotic in business. That's for that's sure. exactly yeah. right. Tony is a good friend. We're going to have him for dinner coming up at the World Business Forum. Uh, he's joining me for a big uh, CEO Hullabaloo coming up for the for the book admired. He's a dear friend, and and I listened to that show, and my goodness, uh, there was just nonstop content and ideas. You have to listen that's why to we it all love at, Tony. Uh, <laughs> you know, normally we say we have people who say that they listen to our episodes with a audio enhancer that lets them listen at double speed, so they can listen faster. <laughs> Not that we one. We had people say they had to listen to it at half speed so that they could <laughs> right. get it all in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, you, you know, Mark, uh, I've been on Necker Island, you know, a bunch of times. Yes, and, yes. Uh, you know, wh what's the highlight of your week since you've been there, other than the fact that your book has shot up to number one? Well, you know, as I uh, was thinking a moment ago, here's this guy, uh, Richard Branson. He's 62 years old, and, and you know, he can still outswim you and outsail you and out, out uh, uh, pound you in tennis and, and all the rest. And, and I had one delicious moment where we were looking up both of our books, and, and I had just eked out first place and he was in second place and and he had the uh, the the great good humor to just give me a, a big high five on that one and th that's the great thing about necker that's the great thing about your friend richard is that he's someone who's always there to to tell you you can do something that you didn't think you could you know to kind of push you to the next 
level and and to just chase your your vision down and and I, I think that's why we love him. That's why we're inspired by him and. That's why he's a billionaire with 400 companies, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All jazzed up to really <laughs> and pursue a resort to call home. Yeah, Exa- that's right. Yep, exactly. And uh, you know, there's something to be said about uh, you know just entrepreneurs in general, which is cool because people that listen, I love marketing, really are entrepreneurs. They really are genuinely interested in value creation because what we teach in terms of before, during, and after, um, typically people that uh, take our advice are not in the transaction business. They're in the relationship business. So it's really important for them to develop and maintain ongoing relationships. You're a total expert in this particular area. And before I actually ask you some specifics, um, and and Dean asks you some specifics, uh, I want to just mention this because I want our listeners to know if they are not familiar with you. you. You've interviewed more successful and influential individuals than, than maybe anyone that I know. And I, I've interviewed over you know, 400 people. Dean has interviewed a ton of people. We've got lots mm. of brilliant people on I Love Marketing. But I'm just going to rattle off some of the names here. I mean, it, it would take me forever to rattle off all of them. But you, you've interviewed Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Steve Forbes, Branson, uh, you know, Jack Welch, Larry Ellison, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, Peter Drucker, Warren Bennis, Barbara Walters, Mohammed Yunus, uh, Bono, Desmond Tutu, Sally Field, George Soros, Eric Schmidt, Charles Schwab, Condoleezza Rice, uh, Rudy Giuliani, Newt Gingrich, uh, Gordon Moore. I mean, I, I don't know where to stop here. Herb, Herb <laughs> Kelleher, you know, uh, just Bill Clinton, on and on. You've also interviewed the CEO of the New York Stock Exchange, the commissioner of the NBA, um, you know, the president of JFK University, the chairman of the World Economic Forum, the CEO of Intel. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So one of the things I kind of want to start uh, with is, you know, what are the, the three big lessons you've learned after interviewing and hanging out with all these you know, industry transformers is what we like to call them. Well, you know, to me, it's been kind of a, an obsession to meet these folks because I started out working for Chuck Schwab and, and as his lieutenant, building a tiny company starting way back in the, in the 80s. What I learned from him is, and, and dyslexics like him, is that the, kind of the first principle was that, you know, nobody's perfect and you shouldn't wait until you're perfect to try to make a difference in the world. And that you could probably turn whatever incapacities or weaknesses that you think you have into a pretty special weapon to serve the world. So that's kind of non-intuitive. With Schwab, for example, he was so dyslexic that this, this is a guy who, when I was trying to help him at his first annual meeting of stockholders, picture this. This guy, it's a, it's a hot day. He's sweating right through his shirt because it was the stock market crash in 1987. We didn't know if people would bring, you know, weapons of mass destruction into the meeting because they hated brokers, you know, very much like the recent times on Wall Street. And he's dyslexic, so he can't read a script. And so the only way I could actually pass him notes was to make some letters big and some small and some in, you know, italics and, and some in big print. And by the time I got done, it looked like a ransom note. And I hand it to him, and he's, he's almost trembling. And he stands up there, and he talks to people about how he wants to run a different kind of business, one that's ethical, the one that's really positioned to help customers and so forth. And, and his business ended up just taking off. And what he learned from his kind of weakness and dyslexia, the fact that he got kicked out of school a couple times and had had seven businesses fail before Schwab worked out, it all came to him. In, in one moment when he realized that he was a master of making things simple. And if you could make your business simple enough, a complex business, simple enough so that your customers can just absorb 
every word, that they can understand it without reading 400 pages of documentation, if they can really embrace it to solve problems in their life without having to be having their hand held all the way. That was the magic for Chuck Schwab, that he kind of turned his wounds into wisdom. He could make things simple. If he could understand it, the world could understand it. So he really had a kind of this epiphany that if you could simplify things enough to make it easy, then you were the one who would differentiate yourself and be trusted uh, in the world. So, so making, keeping things simple for him was a huge deal. And you'll see that over and over with some of the great entrepreneurs. You know, you look at Steve Jobs, who was a good friend of mine growing up. Here's a guy who wasn't really a technologist. He was a guy who wanted to make things beautiful in an industry that didn't want to even care for a moment about the aesthetic. I mean, think about the Apple products. They're just gorgeous and they're beautiful. And he didn't invent the smartphone. He didn't invent the laptop. He didn't invent the the, the whole idea of being able to provide a, a digital music flow like iTunes. In fact, I was chairman of the company that, that came up with that idea. It was Realport. Um, what did he do? He reinvented the world so it was simple and easy and beautiful and accessible and intuitive. And and so people like Chuck and, and Steve and others, they've always been able to focus on how the customer wanted to receive it rather than how the technologist or the financial wizard wanted to produce it. So kind of being in the customer's shoes so that you had this spectacular, easy customer experience. And so that, that would be the first principle. And, and then I, I'd say the second principle would be something that's near and dear to your hearts because you guys are the dream team and uh, no one does it better. I mean, if there was anyone to tell me that there wasn't anything as such as mass marketing anymore, you'd be the first one to tell me that, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> no customer wants to feel like he is anything less than absolutely unique and special. So, uh, you know, it's no longer about selling. It's about transactions or or just product sales. It's about relationships. It's about trusted partnerships and and the job that we have as marketing people is to be ones who solve problems we're supposed to be detectives to find out what's valuable to people and and how we can make people more profitable more successful the the metaphor that i always got growing up at chuck with chuck schwab of course was investing and and the idea was always hey what if you had to pull the checkbook out of your pocket right now and write a check to your customer so that you could be an equity holder, a shareholder in that company. Would you treat them differently than you do today? If the answer is yes, then you need to think differently about how to form a partnership because the truth is you're already spending time, effort, and energy selling to them. Why not take it all away? Write that check and you know buy shares and be a partner uh, with that customer. So that's really principle number two that, that kind of pounded me that was, on, I think, non-intuitive because I think a lot of folks – uh, really want the quick gain still even today, and they're not really realizing that it's much cheaper, much more efficient, and much more profitable to partner with your customers and help them become more profitable. And then mm. the third principle has to do with uh, back again to your friend Richard Branson, with whom you spend so much time here on Necker, and that is these these great entrepreneurs, and, and, and whether they you know won a Nobel Prize or, or whether they invented something amazing or, or they became a billionaire, they all have this odd con combination of, of audacity and humility. Uh, they, on the one hand, they really believe that you can change the world if you set your sights on it. And on the other hand, they have hu the humility to realize that there's not a damn thing that gets done in the world alone. There's nothing worthwhile you'll ever do in your life or work that you don't do through and with other people by recruiting to them that cause and, and infecting them with some passion to, to make a difference in that way. And so, you know, these people are all saying, you know, 
It's we're going to go to the we're we're going to go into space and we're going to do it with you know six guys, not with six thousand like NASA. We're going to do Virgin Galactic, and we're going to have a contest to do that and and let the let the uh, the most successful, let the the ones that have the audacity survive and succeed and prosper. But you have to have the humility to know that you've got to learn from others, recruit others, and rely on others to get it actually done. And, um, and and that's kind of a special combination. I think that's what my friend Jim Collins calls level five leadership. Is when you're mm. you have you have a certain level of hubris and humility at the same time, which doesn't usually go in the same package. But if you look at a lot of the billionaires, it certainly does. So th- those would be that's three kind of three things. Say, I uh, audacity like that is uh, there was a book um, several years ago called Overachievement, and they basically <laughs> did a study about you know, overachievers. And one of the key things that they discovered they had was irrational confidence. Yes. Which, <laughs> it's kind of like a parent, isn't it? I mean, it it's really a, is. Like, who, it's a Greenspan's irrational exuberance, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's like, who's to say how much confidence is rational or how much, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what audacity really is, isn't it? It's, it's that irrational. It's outrageous. Yeah. 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 It's just, and, 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 and a lot of these people, as I was saying with, with even a Steve Jobs or even an Edison, Edison didn't invent the electric light. It existed. There was mm-hmm. electric light on streets in America, but it was dangerous. It wasn't packaged in a way that it could go retail into people's homes. And so these guys have the audacity to say, okay, you know, we've gone to space already. Can we do it better, faster, cheaper, safer, more fun, more conveniently? Can we rethink it? You think about uh, Richard Branson. He's constantly watching for actually pretty well-established businesses that have huge market share and have lost their connection with the, the customer. They've lost their sense of audacity that made them entrepreneurs in the first place, that we can make this experience fantastic for customers. So he comes descending in and you know, reinvents the, uh, you know, the air experience or reinvents the way yeah. your ride goes on the train or reinvents the bank, all things that yeah. existed, but used to be great until someone lost their audacity and lost their humility too along the way. Yeah, you, you just said something really interesting there. You said it used to be great till it lost its audacity. I was just with my real dear friend, uh, Dan Sullivan at Strategic oh, sure. Coach like day before yesterday. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I it wasn't my normal group. I actually go to Strategic Coach. I've, I've been doing it for many years. And mm, um, right. basically, you know, I just, Dan's is a real dear friend of mine. And I went in and, and spoke to the to the master's group he had there. And there he was talking about... Um, greatness and you know mm. that Steve Jobs was you know not per se interested in money uh you know especially after he was diagnosed no. with cancer he was interested right. in greatness yep and you know i think one of the commonalities with a guy like you you know your new book admired which i'm going to ask you in a minute what what's that book all about uh, but you know like all these people that you've interviewed people you know like branson i mean there there's this pursuit of of greatness i mean would you would you agree that their goal i mean in your experience, is it, how much is money a part of it versus something much different? Well, a lot of people don't really want to buy it, but I don't think it's about the money at all. I think it is about greatness. I think it's about being up to something, and maybe the biggest ego part would be like Bill Gates. He wanted to be right, um, and they wanted to be right about something that they had a great idea that they thought they could do better. You know, Bill Gates thought he could say, okay, there'd be one type of software, and no matter where you are on the planet or what language you speak or what culture you're from or what kind of company that you have, whether it's large or small, you could open that document, and it would be a Word document. It would be a spreadsheet. It would be – and it was a breakthrough, right? He just made it – it was an outrageous, audacious idea, and he wanted to be right about that. 
and it ended up being worth billions more than I think he would have ever guessed it would be. And and sure, I think people like the money maybe as a way to get, you know, keep score perhaps, but it, it is never about that. In fact, uh, the people who kind of pursue that usually can achieve it only to, you know, never maybe reach the status of a billionaire or having lasting businesses. Because, the you know, the as we all know on this call, everybody here is a hero of mine. I mean, everybody who's an entrepreneur, everybody who's in marketing, you guys, you rock. You're all heroes of mine. And the reason you do is because you realize the changing customer is the only thing that's constant. You know, you know that things, that needs are going to change, competition's going to change, circumstances are going to change. And in order to be right over and over again, you have to listen and respond and, and create great customer experiences and reinvent them over and over again. You, not, you never kind of arrive at this destination and then can, can rest on your laurels. And, and that's what these, all ha- these guys have. They want to be great, but great isn't a destination. Great is a place where you're constantly testing the envelope. You're constantly pushing to make it better, faster, smarter. I mean, that's the only reason why entrepreneurs can beat big companies because they become – big companies become risk-averse, right? They reached greatness <laughs> and then right. lost their audacity. And then their job was to protect their job. Then their job ended up being and, – and, and so it shouldn't be possible that guys like us on this call could actually challenge the big guys and win. Shouldn't be, they have more money. They have distribution. They have more customers. They have more resources. They have more experienced people. But we beat them every day of the week. Why? For this exact reason, you know, because we're focused on the customer experience and we have the audacity and willing to take the risks – to keep changing until we get it right and, and then keep getting it right. You said something earlier about the idea of partnering with your clients and would yep. you be willing to write a check right. to, to do that? And it just, it's so funny because we were in New York um, at Joe's 25K event with the abundance event. We had Peter yes, right. and Steve Incredible Ford, event. great guys. So we had these, we did these um, 10 minute talks and right. one of the things um, I give a 10 minute talk and talked about the idea of this clarifying question that I have. Of, mm. What would you do if you only got paid when your client gets a result? And it just <laughs> resonated with me so much when you say that, you know, it's the same thing as writing, you know, writing exactly. a check to invest in your, in your client's business. Would you put your, you know, the money that you're going to make, would you put that after your client gets the result. It's that this is exactly kind of what mindset of really that that is audacious. That is audacious. No, that's right on. And and when you're an investor, that's what you have to do. Now you're on mm. the same side of the table. You're both taking the risk together. You're both looking at what the bottom line of that partner is. And boy, they don't become overly price sensitive or nitpicky when when you're now on the same side of the table as you are, as they are with the work they're trying to do and try to learn how to make them more profitable, help them with their cost structure, help oh, them with no, their talent. It's, it's exactly the opposite. They become magnanimous. Yes. People are right. far less attached to future money than they are to present money. And if you're <laughs> yes, helping them right. generate that future money, they're magnanimous in sharing it. It is. It's so true. And I think that's, that's the new paradigm. That's really the, I think the new model right now is that there's, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a way to, to partner with your customers to make them more successful and therefore you've got this synergy. And, and that really is at the centerpiece of, of my book, Admired. What I was looking at is how the most admired companies and leaders – in Fortune magazine, they have the most admired list of companies and people fall over themselves to try to get on this most admired list. Mm. And with good reason because the people who are on the most admired list, they're not necessarily just the biggest, but they are the most profitable 
They sustainably grow in, in good and bad times. They are valued the most. In other words, they're, they're pricing in the marketplace. Their market capitalization, their value as measured by the stock market is higher. You look at someone like um, Apple, everybody covets them because it's not that they necessarily sell more devices, but they sell them for three times as much mm-hmm. and their margins are so much bigger. Uh, because they're admired, because they're respected, and, and because they're valued. So what we looked at in our book was, so what the hell is it that people value? What do they really respect? And, and what do they really were, are willing to pay for? And that's one of the things that's perhaps most key, is when, when you form a real investment partnership with your customer, um, that kind of binding yourself to the customer makes you admired. Uh, that, mm-hmm. makes you, that gives you more respect, and they value you more for that, that kind of work. So let's let's actually talk about it. Um, you you obviously wrote this really great book, and I'm going to recommend that everyone listening to I Love Marketing uh, go and buy it. Mark's books are awesome, great writer, and you did it with Bonita. So um, yes, tell us a little bit about Bonita. Well, so what we did is what what Bonita does is that she spent 25 years in corporate human resources. She's a person who's an expert in compensation. So she knows exactly how and why companies pay you what they pay you. Whether you're a vendor, whether you're an employee, whether you're a consultant, uh, whether you're just trying to go to them to, to build some sort of partnership. She's an expert at figuring that out because these companies have great stakes. You know, They have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on employees, on vendors, and, and on uh, all the supply chain. And so she's an expert in understanding how that works. She, she reclassified 100,000 jobs at, at Bank of America. She helped start a little company called Genentech back when biotech was starting, and she had to seduce uh, these high-powered uh, biotechnologists to come to an industry that just didn't exist before and, and figure out how to compensate them. And she came up with this idea of incentive stock options and and so she's been very creative in that area. And so she's been a great partner with me on all my books doing the research. And what we did is we went and we did a Gallup-like study. And we asked people, what do they value in companies and brands? And what do they value in individual leaders? And we found out some interesting things. Then we went on to ask them, and I'll go into those in a moment. But then we went on to ask them, so do you feel valued in the work that you do? And, and we got kind of an interesting answer from a broad population in the U.S. The answer we got was on maybe a scale of seven. People said, yeah, I feel valued maybe at a four. Not bad, not great. Mm-hmm. Then we said, okay, so you're, you're saying that you feel like you're not quite valued as much as you'd like to be by the most valuable people in your, in your life and your work. And the most valuable people meaning you know, your customers, your teammates, your boss. You feel like you're not quite valued, but but let me ask you this next question, and that is, do you know what they value? Do you know what those most valuable people in your life value? And everybody gave it about a two. So let me get this straight. So you really care about making sure that you're getting valued fully for the work that you do and the contribution that you're making. And you don't think it's quite good enough, but but, uh, you think you should be valued more. And then you have the audacity to tell me that, that you actually don't know what those people value. <laughs> and this whole idea of kind of understanding what your customer needs and wants and values, we all talk about it, but we just don't work hard enough in all aspects of our life and work to find out, be the detective that all marketing people have to be, to find out what, what your customers value, what will make them profitable. What will make them more successful? What will make your boss more successful? Mm-hmm. Um, do you really know? How much do you really know about these people? And so we were just fascinated to see 
how much people needed to really refocus on if you want to be admired, valued, and respected, then you sure as heck better understand what the people who you're looking for that admiration from need in order to be successful and make it your business in life, make it your mission to make them successful. And so that was, you know, it's interesting. There hadn't been, we worked with our friends at Stanford where I created the Venture Design Lab uh, many years ago and uh, friends at at Northwestern who did the academic uh, backing up for this. And then we did face-to-face interviews, as you talked about. And it was fascinating to hear, you know, what it is, in fact, that people needed to focus on in order to really drive their business. And, And, you know, we did simple things like, you know, create a list of the people who drive your life and business's success. Find out what... That, those MVPs, those uh, most valuable people, what is their portfolio of priorities? What, what is going to define their profitability and prosperity? And then you know, find out exactly what they need and see where you overlap in terms of the skills and what you can deliver, and then make it your business as if you were an investment partner to help them become successful. And then guess what will happen? They're going to value the hell out of you. They're really going to re- they're going to really wish that they have you at their side and, and want to be able to work with you directly and have a long term relationship. It builds loyalty. Um, so it was it was kind of an amazing and a, an extraordinary adventure. You know, there's been work done on influence. There's been a lot of work done in sales and marketing. Nobody's ever looked at you know why anyone admires you in the past. And mm. so this was a fascinating adventure. You know, and, and what's actually really interesting, and, and I don't, I don't want to understate uh, or overstate this. I just think it's um, huge if you actually just think about what you just talked about. Um, being admired, not only the psychological benefits of that from an appreciation standpoint, right. but really setting your life up, setting yourself up to being that in tune with who you want that admiration from and delivering it, presenting it, packaging it in that way, uh, your life will not suck. I mean, it, you <laughs> your life will so just, yeah, exactly right. It just unleashes you. See, well, the thing I like about it is you think about somebody that you admire. And when you think about that person, then map out what are the attributes or the traits of that person? You know, why is it that you admire them? And you know what it ends up being? It's a, it's a peek in the mirror. You're looking at what you aspire to be yourself. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about someone you admire, you're saying, that's who I want to be. And that's, the whole, that's kind of who I not only am inspired by, but I'm also even, it even gets up all sorts of fears and dreams. I mean, th- this, is, this is the life and the person that I want to be. And that's why I admire them. And so to be really explicit about this, I think what's great about it, too, is it could be extremely motivating to your team. One of the most challenging things for all of us in the, who are on this call, who have who got smaller businesses that are becoming mid to, to big businesses, is you know, recruiting and, and hiring other folks. And if you can find a reason to admire the people on your team, it's more than just recognizing them. It's saying, you know, here's what makes your contribution special to the cause and to the company. And it's aspirational because it says, okay, this is what I'd like, you know, and I'd like to admire you for these other things. <laughs> I admire you for A, B, and C, and I'd like to admire you for, for D, E, and F, that these, these other things that you can achieve. It's very aspirational. It's, it's very respectful, and it, and it makes your life feel great. Um, one of the things we talked about with a lot of entrepreneurs is that, you know, everybody's challenged with that recruiting and hiring. And, and one of the things you need to think about in, in your business is think in terms of if it burned down, who would you hire back? You know, who do you admire most on the team and what would you be doing? Could you really think about this as starting in terms of starting over? 
And you know, if these aren't people that you that you admire, then you need to think about getting people or developing people that you do, uh, and getting those people to help rock your business. Because that's what these billionaires did. Getting back to the people that Joe, that you've interviewed, and Dean, and and that we've all had the pleasure of being able to sit down with and work with and and brainstorm with. They all did it by finding people who really rock, people they admire. Sitting at Necker, watching him, you know, interview people, and it's. You know, he he has nothing to brag about, Richard Branson. He, you know, he, he doesn't end up focusing on that. He ends up saying, "Oh, so so, what is it that you do? How, what you what are you an expert in, and and how can you help this cause? And do you share this as a vision, so that it could be yours?" Um, well, isn't that it's kind of amazing. interesting that uh, you know you talk about Steve Jobs and you know personifying that, and I forget who the the gentleman was that was working with with pepsi before he came on with apple and steve had, scully scully, scully yeah. right after john scully know, yeah yeah do you want to uh you know do you really want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water you know or do you want to make something awesome yeah. <laughs> i mean that it's right there how could you when faced with like that that really was the bottom of it wasn't it i mean are you really making the world a better place that's right. Are you making the world a better place? And, you know, being connected with a cause like that, I mean, you were asking me earlier about what are some of the things you learn from these power, powerful people. I mean, honestly, all these folks are focused on solving a big problem that the customer has. You, you, you really have nothing going for you unless you, you realize that, that, that the only reason you have a business is because you're solving somebody's problem. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I often think of you know business. It's just you're solving problems for a profit. I mean, that's what right. you do. Exactly. And if there's no bad news out there, uh, you know, Dan Sullivan says other people's uh, you know bad news is your good news. Exactly. Um, and, and you know, not that we want to wish bad news on anyone, but the fact of the matter is, there's lots of bad news in the world. And if you can eliminate the bad news, if you can make their day better, if you can solve their problems, people will pay you. They will adore you. And if you can set yourself up to be admired <laughs> for who you are, I mean, it just adds so much, uh, so much value to everything you got. So I, I actually, you know, think that this is, you know, hopefully this becomes. Um, you know, a movement in terms of people that read your book really get this blueprint because you haven't just written a book about, you know, being admired. You've written really a blueprint on how to get the things that you want in your life by helping people have what they want and getting really clear on that. And that's that's a pretty, you know, that shifts the whole conversation about how to think about really, yeah. work, career, business, everything. Well, it is, and it's interesting, you know, uh, when you're wandering around Necker, you probably notice Larry Page's island that he bought there that he's going to be renovating, and and I saw Larry at the World Economic Forum in in Davos um, at the beginning of this year, and he really, you know, the way he framed all of this is he said that we all have to think in terms of kind of five fundamental questions. He, He basically said, no pain, no gain. In other words, do you know how your customer has been abused or or failed by your type of service or product in the past? I mean, do you really know? I mean, everybody's had a bad service experience. Everybody's had a bad customer experience. If you end up being the one to heal the pain, or even take it an additional step like Richard does when you go on Virgin America uh, or Virgin Atlantic and, and actually make it feel like something between an Austin Powers and James Bond sort of experience. You know, you got that purple lighting and the vibe going on in the background. And can you feel, can you make the customer not only be healed of his pain, because he doesn't want to have to make another long trip. But can you make him feel a little bit chic? 
about it. They mm. can feel really cool about it. Um, that that ends up being kind of the holy grail. And then secondly, why why do you do people shop elsewhere from from where you have your service provided in the first place? In other words, why do they perceive value from your competition? And and don't try to comfort yourself and say that the customer is stupid because it's, it's not the customer that's stupid, right? <laughs> it's never <laughs> the customer that's, that's stupid. Third, why would an ideal prospect switch to you? And you do you know how to say that to describe that value in 25 words or less. If you can't make a quick statement as to why somebody's to switch to you in 25 words, then you need a better strategy. Fourth, what are your key assumptions about your competitors and are you really right? Um, I don't know about you, but when I was at Schwab, there's like way too many times I'd be in a, in a meeting and I was running schwab.com and, uh, you know, I'd have one of the engineers say, well, those, the, you know, the idiot customer couldn't find the login in the upper left-hand corner. And I said, you know, he, the, he the the customer is smart enough to know that he's going to go someplace where it's logical to him, not logical to you as an engineer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? exactly. We used to have this. We used to have this usability lab, and we watched the poor customer suffer with our products on the other side, and and our product engineers would be like pounding on the window, window saying, "You idiot! It's over there!" <laughs> and they could finally learn what it was to try to make something intuitive and 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 not make stupid assumptions about why people use your, your competitive services. And then the fifth principle is always, you know, what do you know what makes your customer profitable? And, it's, and I don't know how many salespeople I've talked to who actually don't know what makes your customer profitable so as that they can continue to part with their hard-earned money and give it to you to help them become more profitable because that's mm-hmm. the only point of, of having a relationship with you. And so getting kind of underneath, looking under the hood of your customer, as we yeah. talked about earlier, ends up being a big part of the value equation. And when you do that, I guarantee you're admired. <laughs> they, they will admire, respect, and value you more, for sure. It's amazing. And so what, what do you think is the biggest takeaway when someone actually, let's say someone reads your entire book, goes through your book, what is the big take? What, 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 what will they get? Well, I think the, the, the hardest thing to really realize is that the the reason I talk about 21 ways to double your value is because that's exactly what happens. As a venture capitalist, I'm in the business of trying to find ways to unlock value in a business. So I'm an executive coach. I, I, buy, I have skin in the game. I buy stock in a company. And it's amazing to me to see how two dental practices or two marketing companies or two technology companies, one will sell for five times profits, the other will sell for two. Why the heck is there a difference? And so what I'm looking for are all the ways in which when you provide additional value and you understand what's valued by your customer, you will increase your price earnings multiple. This is money in your pocket. When you realize that you could be so well connected to the market that you're valued more, why is it that, that Apple, producing the same products as Samsung, is valued as the most highly capitalized company in the world? I mean, it's worth a half a trillion dollars. It has a price earnings multiple second to none <laughs> mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. for a business that has real earnings. Now, there are other, uh, others out there that are inexplicable that you know, traded high prices for short periods of time. But, what, but the real takeaway in wanting to be admired and understanding the, the secret sauce to being valued, respected, and admired is that you will double your value, triple your value, quadruple your value in the marketplace. Because see, a lot of, of, a lot of us who run small and mid-sized businesses will unfortunately leave our business, maybe if we're lucky to an heir, uh, most of us run our businesses kind of down to zero when we retire and leave them. We don't sell them for a profit. 
And so the other big takeaway from this book is that you really don't have a business until you can leave and it runs on its own. In other words, would you buy stock in a company with just one person who makes all the decisions? You know, would you, would you be an investor uh, in your business, uh, in somebody's business where it was all reliant on one person? And so one of the things you realize when you have to build value in a company is that it's got to be based on people who can run this place and, and so that you do have an exit eventually. That uh, in, until you do, you have consulting practice. You don't have a business. A business comes when you have s- such smart, visionary, capable, uh, experienced, loyal people who are running that business that they're going to become millionaires at it, and they'll make you a millionaire when when it's purchased by a bigger company or, or goes public on an exchange. So I've spent my life in the public markets, and and so the end game here is one where you kind of do. You do good and do well at the same time. You do a great job for customers. You build incredible, valuable customer experiences. If you really know what customers want, then you're going to have the most valuable business in your category. So to me, that's the end game. That's always the end game. Yeah, that's all, that's awesome. You know, you this word value gets used a lot. I, yeah. I'd love to ask you how you know how do you think about and define value. Well, that's one of the weird things about value is that, and, and perhaps one of the bigger surprises when we did the research is, not everyone values the same things for the same amount. Um, that, that in a sense that what somebody value, I think the better word would be like to say, this is what your customer finds valuable. In other words, something they're willing to cherish and pay for and protect and go after if they have something that's valuable to them. Because you're right, the word values ends up being kind of hijacked for all sorts of different kind of moral, ethical, and, and controversial reasons. Uh, and, it's, and often, you know, when we have exercises in big companies, I remember at Schwab, I'd, you know, they'd ask you, what are your values? And everybody would kind of compete with what sounded the most lofty. And it's meaningless. It's like kind of useless. Yes, you want to be honest and you want to have integrity and, you know, you want to be family focused and so forth. But what does all of that mean? So for this context, I really kind of focus more on what is valuable to people. And it's surprising how different that is. You know, it was with Jeff Bezos, uh, and, and, and he invented this whole idea of collaborative filtering. You know, if you like this thing, you'll also like that thing. To me, that's one of the biggest breakthroughs in marketing is to understand what he's understanding is, you know, what is it about this product that the person really finds valuable? And then I can find this whole host of other solutions and products that, that fit within that same category. And it seems to me that all of us are in marketing are, are detectives trying to understand exactly what it is that flips people's switch um, and, and what families of products work for somebody um, rather than, you know, what, what one transaction can I pull off or how can I just close the sale? You're really looking for, you know, Bezos really invented this whole collaborative filter idea and understanding how, what are the patterns of what different market segments want. And, and so at the end of the day, I think the definition of value is kind of, it's what people are willing to make sacrifices to get and part with their heart and earn money to have. I love it. That's great. Well said. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting, though, because focusing on the differences that people have, when you were saying that, I was thinking immediately of Procter & Gamble. And yeah. And how, you know, most big box retailers, if they're going to get in the laundry detergent space, they you know, put some laundry detergent in a box and label it laundry detergent and put it <laughs> out there. And right. here at Procter & Gamble, you know, they look, they understand that some people want their clothes to be as white as they can be, and some people want them to smell good, and some people want to just be able to throw it all in, 
you know, in one load and not worry about all the colors blending. And, you know, so they get into all those different things that people value. And, you know, while other people have one laundry detergent that may or may not sell well, they've got, you know, $5 billion brands just in the laundry detergent category. It's you're but listening to you talk. It's, it, it reminds me of the conversation about always the diff, you know, defining the difference between difference between benefits and features yeah. and everybody else kind of, you know, as, as often as we hear that lecture, it's like Sunday service. We have to hear it over and over, right? It's not about the features. It's oh, about I, that's exactly it. That's what I was saying, uh, Joe, I was telling Mark before you got on the uh, call, how resonant his book is with all of our profit activators, especially our, you know, profit activator number five is deliver a dream come true experience from your client's perspective. And that's right. the that's the principle behind what Procter and Gamble is doing because they're they're committed to building the very best product from and the customer's the, perspective. What I always love the the story of those guys when they went out and did the market research so deep that they could outsell all the other kids with their uh, potty training kits because they actually went out there and watched the kids uh, learn to be potty trained and realized that the kid was trying to balance himself with one hand and only had the other hand to do the the paperwork and. Uh, <laughs> came up with a product that could be handled with one hand. <laughs> so yeah, that, isn't that something? That's amazing. That know, is that, comedy. That's how you create a billion-dollar brand is to know exactly how the customer is suffering with the problem so that you can inter, you know, intervene and, uh, and have an intervention that just makes total difference. The, the other thing that really struck me, and, and there was something from, from Warren Buffett that, that he was talking about. Now, here's a guy who you can imagine has – he gets hit on – Every 15 seconds for a business plan or, or for a job, you can just kind of imagine wherever he goes, just like Richard and the others, everybody's pitching them hard. And I asked him about that. I said, so how do you kind of differentiate? I mean, what do you find what, – what, what would be some like quick vetting criteria that you're using? You know, what do you find value about, about this person? And he says, it's a great question because he says, you know, I won't even take the meeting until you meet three criteria when it comes to value. And I said, okay, I'm there. I'm listening. He says, now everybody who usually comes to him is a high performer. They have a great resume. They have some track record. So it's basically the three Ps, we call them. It's performance, which is, you know, what have you achieved? What have you been able to deliver on? That's the thing that's probably the easiest to measure for all of us business people because you're saying, you know, did you make the sale? What kind of growth have you shown? What kind of margin, margins can you produce? So that's, that's the performance piece. And he says, there's usually, you know, when people come to him with something, they've, they've pretty much nailed it there. Then the, the other two areas, the other two Ps, though, they struggle more with. And, and the first one is purpose. In other words, are these people kind of aligned with what they're doing like it was a cause as much as a company? In other words, mm-hmm. I, I love the, the comparison he made uh, when uh, the, the guys were trying to start a company called Family.com. But it was quickly, you could look, could look at these guys and you could see in about three minutes that it's clear that they hadn't been with their family for like five years. So they had no abs- absolute connection with the cause or the meaning or the purpose or the power of what it was that they're doing. And I'm not saying that everything that you do has to be a moral drive. Um, I do have to say that you've got to love it because and, and people really notice whether you think that what your solution is is actually better than brand X or Y. It's got to be – you know, you, people are now so cynical that they can, they can smell whether you are kind of purpose-driven. Uh, in this work. So, and, and, and you can imagine someone like Warren can sniff it out as well. You just, you know, you don't make that second 
sense of performance and purpose, then you, know, you have nowhere to go. And then the third area, and he says actually the one that's the hardest but gets talked about the most, is passion. And a passion is this thing that, you know, that, that where you would secretly almost do this for free. This is something that, mm-hmm. that drives you from inside out. You know, passion is the kind of thing that makes you get up and be resilient when, when you fail. And he says, Mark, you know, I can't believe these people. They come to me and they'll say, I've got the performance metrics nailed. And I've got a good purpose for this business. The passion, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll bring that in on weekends or evenings or, you know, maybe I'll do that in my next job or in the next company after I exit this one. He says, Mark, yeah. you know, when I cash my exit check, then I'll. Yeah, exactly. It's like, give me a break. <laughs> it's kind of like your happiest day with a sailboat is the first day and the last day, right? Yeah. The, the day you buy it and the day you sell it. He it, it says, it's like, you know, saving, uh, you know, putting off passion is kind of like saving up sex for old age. You know, it's, it's a really bad idea. You, you got to really be sexed up about this right now. And he says that's, you know, the people who are passionate about what they do will run faster, do more, earn more, make fewer mistakes, they have fewer sick days, and they even live longer. So it's, it, it ends up being the X factor. If you've got people who are Olympians, you know, it's that extra passion that puts it over the top. And, um, and it was funny because, you know, Warren Buffett's this 80-year-old with thick glasses and gray hairs, and I didn't expect him to talk about, you know, you've got to feel the sex, dude. <laughs> you've got to oh, really feel it. <laughs> that, that is hysterical. You know, I, I also, you know, speaking of Buffett and his whole punch card theory, you know, yeah. and the number one thing he looks for, you know, in, in investments is opportunity cost and, you know, stuff like that, you know, all these different, like, quotes and things that he said. Right. Um, you know, his whole thing um, about just managing his time and stuff, and, and a guy like you, I mean, clearly, you, uh, you're you a very busy guy. You get hit up with a lot of deals. You have more opportunities than you can shake a stick at, uh, and you've, you've done that because you set up your life so that people, you know, admire you and you deliver value for them. I mean, you know, if people want to know how to, you know, do what you've done, uh, and people like you, you know, read your book, obviously. Uh, right. what, 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 is, what are some of your methodologies, philosophies for filtering? The, you know, the same thing you uh, kind of asked uh, Warren, but more just about what gets your attention and what doesn't. Well, I think, first of all, you've got you, you to think about uh, if, you, if you really do take a close look at passion, you need to know what really drives you. Uh, yeah. and, and I think for most of us who are kind of intuitive overachievers, we don't really actually understand or haven't deconstructed what it really means to understand what you're passionate about or, or even to see what's, what your customer is passionate about. Because if you can find out what he or she's, what's really driving him or her, you'll build a relationship, you'll be able to deliver better, and you'll be able to understand more what turns them on and, and what they're going to be willing to buy and partner with you on. So uh, it, actually, it turns out in, in our research, we found six or seven criteria for passion. Um, and, and I apply them to every deal that, that I look at because passion ends up being important because it's what makes you get back up again when you're, when you fail, cause you will. Uh, and it's what makes you want to, uh, be irrationally exuberant and recruit other people and have the audacity because it, cause passion is what kind of takes you over the top and makes you audacious and saying, we can do this better, faster. Uh, and, and so a few ways for those of us who, to me, I'm kind of, I was kind of passion impaired, to understand what it really meant, um, I, I have this kind of checklist, and and one of them is, would this be, you know, would this be something I'd want to be involved with and 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 make a contribution to the world in if I secretly had to do it for free? Now I'm not not suggesting that you do things for free, 
and I don't very often. But I did real. But it's it's interesting. I did uh, I do did see over and over again with people who are really high achievers. This wasn't stuff they wanted to get over with. This is shit they wanted to do. Right, this is right. stuff they wanted to make a difference with. This was flipping their switch. We're going to make a lot or a little money on this. But I really care about this. And so um, you know, secretly doing it for free has ended up being a, a very powerful differentiator for me. Because I, I don't know about you, but our good friend Chet Holmes died this year. My, my good friend Steve Jobs last, died last fall. Um, I, you know, it's, these are people who have contributed so much and made such a difference, and life is short. And um, if there's anything that encourages you to think that way, it would be, the, you know, let death be your advisor, as Don Juan said. So, yeah. uh, you know, something that you'd secretly do for free, that shortens the list up really freaking fast. You're mm-hmm. not just doing this for the status. Um, it's, it's something that you'd like to have a part of your legacy, maybe. Stand up and be counted for. Yeah, I, I was a part of that. I really wanted to make that difference. I really think that should be done a different way. This is, you know, this is something you want to be counted for. So I think that'd be mm-hmm. a second criteria is kind of this accountability or, or legacy. Isn't that um, funny, Mark? Because when, when Joe and I decided to do the I Love Marketing podcast, first of all, the, just the name, I Love Marketing, is something yes. that's easy to get behind that. Yeah. Right? It has passion built into it. it but does. we actually had a conversation about um, what would it be like right now if, we had access to, you know, a hundred years ago, the best marketers, all the all the Claude Hopkins and the you know, <laughs> yes. Joseph Kennedy and all these guys. And we, we right said on. literally, can you imagine if like wow. Albert Lasker and, and, and Claude Hopkins got together every week and would, you know, talk for an hour and record all the all the best stuff that was going on, you know, at that best time practices. what a, a gold mine we would have felt like we stumbled on, you know? And, and what a legacy for them to leave for the rest of us. Exactly. And so Joe and I, that was our thing is like, you know, imagine a hundred years from now, if somebody stumbles on, you know, the, uh, the, this volume that we did of the first, uh, the first 50 episodes of, of I Love Marketing, it's kind of, uh, um, that's the way we feel about it. It's just wow. kind of that passion you know and that's what you're doing now that's that yeah. that's the service that you're providing everyone else this is a curriculum this is inspiration and this, these are people who actually do stuff don't just talk about it or study it or or prognosticate or it's no philosophical conversation you're having you're you're talking about what they've actually done and and you're leaving that for the world and I, and I think that's how all the great you know when you go from good to great it's it is about leaving a legacy and and being willing to stand up for it and and there's another dimension too, and that is that that it's something that you feel that that you actually get distracted by. It's it's one of the things that your mind runs uh, to, and you and you daydream about it, and you think about it, and you get you get I guess what Mikhail Chesmaholov, the sociologist, did a lot of study on what people got distracted by or lost track of time. It's when you're in the really, flow. That's a fantastic distinction. When you say, what do you get distracted? by versus what do you get distracted from yes <laughs> exactly that's a pretty good indicator right <laughs> it is it's a huge indicator usually you'd say well that's just annoying yeah. well actually that that's actually another criteria we found for passion look at what irritates you and then realize the reason it irritates you is because you care about it 
and that you'd like to, and what you're, what's valuable to you or the value that's being violated is the inverse of that. So I, you know, I have a really good friend who is a madman and she's basically just, she, she will go into a screaming fit if she sees like a bad line of advertising copy. I mean, she just goes eight and, and <laughs> her husband will go, but honey, it's just advertising. No, it's a hundred million dollar campaign. Right. It's bad. Co- I cannot stand to see badass copy. It's just, now that's a, that's a valuable, that is passion at work. Yeah. She's daydreaming about it. She's living and eating and sleeping it. And am I surprised that she's good at it? Um, and so having that, that obsession for it. And, and, and I think a lot of people kind of say, well, if I'm distracted by something, you know, get back on task. Well, wait a minute. You better look at what you're being distracted by. Actually, there's some power there. There's energy there. And, and look at what irritates you. No, I want to ignore what irritates me. No, pay attention to that. That's, that's, that's energy. That's, yeah. that's power. There's those, that yeah. short list of things. Yeah, no, I, th- I think I think what you're saying is such a important distinction that a lot of people don't pick up on. And, and by the way, I, I do want to mention this too because I've I've uh, admired right in front of me here, and everything that you're talking about. If if our listeners, if you want to go deep with this, like on page 41, you know, there's this question: What if I don't have passion? And then you kind of lay out, you know, this great process, and then you know. That's chapter six, uh, called the passion trap. And then, uh, you know, you just talked about the law of distraction in your new book, you know. And so, I actually want want you to go a little bit deeper with that. But what you what you were just saying with, you know, be it anger, a lot of times that that what you think is something you need to run away from is actually what you need to look at. You know, for Absolutely. instance, um, you know, Gary Chapman wrote this book called the, the you know the the five love languages. Yeah. And, and I actually went and saw him speak, and then I went out and talked with him. And interesting guy, and he he mentioned this one thing. He said, if you want to find out what your partner's love language is, listen to what they complain about. Yes. Because (laughs) they're just crying out for something. And, you know, and I thought, you know, what an interesting way of looking at that. Because a lot of people would be like, well, you know, you're complaining. It's like, well, you know, but there's, there's juice in that. There's a dime in there if you actually know how to think about it. And so what you just said, you know, a lot of the stuff that uh, is, you know, irritating you is, is really, you know, the, the raw material for developing, you know, perhaps the, the greatest thing ever. When you think about it, there's just so many things that are done mediocre or inadequate or that, that are really kind of failures of performance all around us. But there's a short list of things that irritate you. There's a short right. list of things that you rant about. There's a short list of things that you avoid talking about with your spouse or your friend or your dad. <laughs> because, and those are the things that really are the violations of their values. And, and you see this with your customers as well. And it goes back to a comment I meant earlier about, you know, everybody's had a bad service experience. Listen to your, what your customer rants about. That's what you want to become an expert at. You really want to scratch that edge, fix the problem, and double your value and get paid more for it, listen to what irritates your customer. You want to be loved by that girl, listen to what irritates her. You, you know, if you, if you want to get more respect and value and admiration, maybe even from a parent, you know, listen to what irritates them. And, and there's just huge, huge power. We're developing a game, in fact, that looks at both the, your high achievements and what you consider your worst setbacks and really mines those high points and low points to really understand better where your genius is, I mean, where you've really performed well in a way that you're in total, absolute alignment. Because um, there's just such huge power there. I mean, when I talk about this on stage, I've got a, um, when I'm doing the World Business Forum, I always 
kind of finish the discussion of of passions by saying that that perhaps one of the most important things to remember is that when you're in a state of passion, you bore people at cocktail parties because you're actually willing to talk about that damn thing and their their eyes are glazing over and they're trying to figure out how to get to the next person or go get a drink and they're feeling the aging process kicked in and you are still geeking over it. You're still talking <laughs> about it. it. It's when that you know you hear that from a customer or from a loved one, you know that they really value that thing because they're willing to even be politically incorrect. Um, and be boring and 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 be a, and just run on and run on about that topic. These are all things. This is all the detective work that we do as marketing people to really understand all this quirkiness about people that really allows you to to become deeper and more valued and admired and respected by them. You know, I, lo- I love your analogy we use about being a detective because that that really is it. You know, as a marketer, you are a sales detective. As in, in you, in this particular case, is you've been a extraordinary detective in going and in, in, in really piecing apart and dissecting the whole the whole concept of, of you know admiration and, and being am- admired. And so, well, let's let me ask you about. Um, I got to ask you about this, and then maybe we'll come back to it. It's going to seem like a complete pattern interrupt, but you got to tell me about your Tony Awards and you, you, you work your work with Disney and your work with Alicia Keys. I just think our listeners would find that really kind of cool and instructional and fascinating. Well, I think it, so. it's actually on topic with what we uh, we were just talking about in terms of passions. I don't know about you, but in my earlier work and research we did for Built to Last, one of the things that we found that made you last as a success is if you were able to cover your bucket list and participate in or or somehow really flex your muscles in in what I call a portfolio of passions. In other words, there isn't just one thing to do with your life. And right. a lot of people resist that. They say, you know, shit, that's a that's a distraction. You know, or well no, look at that that's a distraction. There's probably some power there. And one of my distractions always was musical theater. You know, I I I, don't, I have to admit it. I love the reason I was a horn player in the pit orchestra in high school and college is because I love to look at girls on stage, and I ended up marrying one, uh, a lyric soprano who ended up going to business school as well and going on to to start Genentech. So she was a good investment, more than just a dancing girl. <laughs> but but uh, but music and theater has always been a passion of mine. And uh, you know, and yet while I could play adequately to get through school with it, I was never talented enough to do it professionally. Um, and, and so I was always voyeuristic about it. It was one of those things I just love to go do. Some people like to go to the Super Bowl. Uh, to me, I like to go to Broadway. So I've been doing that for many, many decades. And then, it, uh, and then I guess, why is this so surprising when I describe it to people that it is to me that it took me a long time to figure out, well, hey, I know a lot about how to run a business. And I, you know, I know a lot about how to market a business, and I've, I coach companies, and I in, invest and produce things. And, and so when Alicia Keys came to me at, at, a, at a dinner and she said, you know, I haven't done a Broadway show before, but I think we could really make a statement about race in America. And uh, could you help me with that? Because you, you, know, you could help me with the business side of this. I said, yeah, Broadway sucks in terms of business. We could do this better. So I found a way to contribute at something that was already a passion of mine. Uh, happens to be, you know, really fits that idea that we were talking about earlier being a, a cause that I could really dig and a passion that I really loved. Why not use my skills uh, for that? And so uh, we ended up uh, putting on her first Broadway production with a bunch of television artists that was, was awesome. And, and we did improve the economics. It's funny how they hadn't paid attention to things that, that you pay attention to every day in all your work, Joe and Dean. Um, they, you know, there are so many industries who have yet to be blessed with what you have to teach them, and Broadway and Hollywood are two of them. 
um, that could use a lot of help. Um, oh, they yeah. tend to be kind of insular. They're snobby. They and the reason they haven't learned as fast as they could is because they're still kind of controlled by the few rather than the many. There's not enough competition really yet, although it's coming. Uh, and uh, and so it was with the success of that play, which was just last year, did my first Broadway show. It got a Tony nomination. Um, on following up on that, Disney came to me after they had just lost. Um, uh, well, I won't say they lost their shirt, but they had some real challenges with a couple of big plays. Uh, they have some of the best successful uh, global uh, performance uh, theater around the world, and uh, and yet the last two that they did didn't work all that well. So they were willing to take on partners, which is very unusual for a big company like that. Usually, they hang on to their own property. So I left at the opportunity of being involved in what they uh, what they created, which was the uh, the prequel to Peter Pan, kind of like uh, Wicked is the prequel to to Wizard of Oz, uh, and it uh, ended up getting the most Tony nominations for a new play in history, and won t- five Tonys. So I went to my first red carpet in the spring this year, and um, and then I you know called on my gay friends and said, "Dress me because I feel like an idiot. I don't know how to walk down a runway. <laughs> I don't know how to do this. <laughs> I'm a business awesome. geek, so uh, <laughs> it was a blast. And it just I guess it's another it's, the lesson there is I think for for anyone is You've got a bucket list. You've got a portfolio of passions. If you really look closely at the Bill Gates of the world and the Richard Bransons and the other, there isn't just one thing that you do. There's one thing that you do obsessively well and great, and then there are other things that really feed your energy, and it's a virtuous circle. I mean, it, it was an extra thing to do. It was like venture capital. It's not as sexy as the company. You know, I'm an investor in cancer genetics, which does personalized medicine. I was in a, a pre-IPO investor in Facebook. Uh, I was, a, you know, an investor in Schwab, and, and I was part of the re-engineering of Best Buy and Corn Ferry and other companies. And, and they're not quite as glamorous, but 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 Broadway has a special place in my heart. And and so find those special places in your heart, and and find what you can do with your skills to contribute in that area and then stand back. You'll just be rocket fuel. You know, you take your skills plus your passion for the cause and, and you can just do amazing work in, in a short period of time. Yeah. You know, and, and the, these are cliche sayings that I'm about to say, but it, it, so much of it is, is just true. I mean, even your statement about, you know, saving up sex for uh, you know, old age, old age. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, Tony's always said, you know, the road to someday leads to the town of nowhere. And, you know, we've all heard life is not a dress rehearsal and people can hear that stuff, but you know, it's like, yeah, that there's like wisdom there and, you know, get off your ass and do something. And, and, and it's, it's not going to, you know, I, I always uh, love to say that, um, and I didn't come up with this. I just uh, heard it somewhere. I no idea where, but you know, professionals, uh, uh, amateurs wait for inspiration. Professionals do it with a headache, and that's when <laughs> you know that's when things are going rough. And, and the you know, but they're not always going rough. And a lot of times they're just right in front of you. You just need to take the step and uh, you know, kind of just go for it. So let me ask you before we run out of time. Um, there is a ton of incredibly useful, valuable strategies, methodologies, lessons, wisdom uh, in the book Admired. Um, in chapter 11 and 12, you give some tools for developing and measuring yourself. And so can you talk about these a little bit? Because I think that alone would be worth uh, the admission fee for people to pick up this book and put it to use. Well, I think to, to think about it and just cut it to the chase, you know, uh, and, and people know the answer to this question. It's, it's a little bit like the passion question. I mean, people will say, you know, I'm not really sure what I'm passionate about. 
And it's and what's really true is that your passion is kind of bound and gagged and put in the basement because it doesn't quite fit with your plan. And so you you know it's it's there, it's lurking, but you've suppressed it because it's inconvenient. It's a distraction. It somehow doesn't fit. And to the extent that you can make it fit, you'll go from good to great. And the same is true about developing and measuring yourself. So there's probably a skill or two that if you had beefed up your ability that could make the biggest difference in meeting your goals, what would that be? What, what, would, those, what would those skills be to, that really help supercharge your ability to perform? Uh, that's how you think about development. That's how people who are billionaires think about it. They say, okay, I know these areas. I don't know these areas. I not only need to get experts, but I need to be able to evaluate what those experts are telling me. I need to know enough to be a smart buyer. So I'm going to get some skills there. I'm going to learn everything I can about it. And it and, and fascinates me with people who you know, have a broad – going back to Richard again, but I'm here at Necker. But the, <laughs> the thing that he does is constantly go deep enough to be able to, okay, what am I going to change about the mobile phone business? He bought a company that was failing. He wanted to turn it around. He wanted to bring it into the United States. And he did that because he felt that he could have a, a better service offering, that he could improve the economics, and he found ways to do that. He brought in better customer experiences, which ends up being the biggest thing he does. Uh, and then he learned a heck of a lot about the telecom business. And then he, remember, he remembered that I was on the board of Best Buy. This is in the early uh, – in 2002. And then he called me and he says, you know, let's do a special deal where people use pre-charged debit-based telephones and let's bring them to the United States. Do you think that would work? And it's today still their best-selling source of, of Virgin mobile phones. He went deep. He, underst- he decided he'd understand a technical area that he wouldn't necessarily have learned before, but it ended up being a game changer. It's one of the most profitable businesses. So what is that for you? You know, and, and, and how could you go about kind of fitting it into your day? And you know, you've got too much to do already, but what would be a game-changing kind of skill that you would have? And then get, you know, get a goal buddy. Uh, and as you were saying, I mean, it, it, it may seem like a cliche, but the research that I've done with Marshall Goldsmith, the number one uh, coach in the world, and by the way, both Marshall and I charge a heck of a lot of money for our executive coaching but as you pointed out earlier, we have a full money-back guarantee. I mean, Marshall charges $250,000 for a CEO coaching experience. does a 360. And at the end of it, if the metrics that we promise that we would change don't change, we don't get paid. Yeah, which is fantastic. That's why he gets the big bucks. Yep. And, um, and, and I think every year, you know, we have two out of ten that don't make it. And I'd say that one out of those two had to do with our poor selection process. They were gaming the system. They just needed a reason to get rid of Sally or Dick. <laughs> they weren't headed to the mm. corner office anyway. And then the other one was just, you know, our user error. We're going to miss that. The other eight, these people got better. And when they got better, tens of thousands of other employees in those big companies got better. And so being willing to be measured and held accountable, uh, you know, get that skill, beef that up, number one. Number two, be willing to be measured, stand up and be counted. And then third, Get a gold buddy. Get somebody who calls you. We did some research on this. We found that no matter how smart Marshall Goldsmith is, that more valuable than having a great leadership coach, even a Mark Thompson, uh, come and help you, is to have somebody checking in with you tomorrow to see if you did those crunches and (laughs) sit-ups. Because you can only lie so many times before 
they you know spook you out. <laughs> yeah, it, being held accountable by somebody who's going to call you tomorrow, and in fact, the fact that they follow up with you is more important even than the expertise of the person. Um, of at least fifty percent or sixty percent of the impact of of getting the call tomorrow has to do with the fact that you're going to get called. Um, and then maybe the other remaining 40% has to do with maybe the content that the person and coaching that person could provide you. We've, we've got a study going on in seven companies right now from the U.S. Navy um, to Exxon. And uh, we're finding that you do leadership training. They spend billions of dollars a year. And if you don't have a goal buddy follow-up in the following weeks, it's all just money that gets spent and disappears. Um, it all comes down to having that goal, buddy. So those three things, I'd say, get a skill, you know, be be measured for it by some some things that matter, not just measures that you can measure, but measures that matter. And then third, you know, have a goal, buddy. That is so damn simple, but so hard to do. <laughs> Who wants to be held that accountable? But uh, you know, that's you watch the guys in the Olympics, and and this is what they do. You know, this is how they become great. Um, and, and that makes all the difference in the world. You know, and, and, the, and the point is, is like, uh, why wouldn't you do it? You know, yeah. If, if, if you can, I mean, why wouldn't you do it? I mean, it's the same reason, you know, people have alarm clocks. I mean, they just don't leave it up to their own habits and rituals. I'm going to wake up at so-and-so. And well, you wouldn't you... do it because you're passionate. You know, you don't really, I mean, you know, if you find it impossibly difficult to do those things, you, you probably aren't as passionate as you thought you might be. Maybe time for you to look at some of those other distractions and do those uh, and, you know, go after something that really matters to you. And maybe not the thing that may appear to be making the most money, but the thing that you could just be so wickedly good at. Let's figure out how to make money after you're great at it. So, I, you know, that ends up being that would be the reason you don't do it is it may be an indicator that it actually isn't your thing. Right, um, when, right. If you're willing to be held that a- accountable for it. And there's so many people that are just stuck in jobs. You know, where they still say half of people hate their jobs? That's why. Their life is filled with inertia, you know, it's, and, and obligations that they have. Uh, and, and, you know, paychecks and, and mortgages that they have to pay. And so you get into this kind of sense of inertia rather than really going for what really matters to you. And therefore, something that you can really become great at. You know, since you're talking about Richard Branson, on the cover of your book, it's a quote from Richard that says, most people want to make a meaningful impact but get stuck along the way. In this book, Mark and Bonita reveal powerful strategies from their latest research that will help you make it happen. Read it and then go try it. Um, Dean, what else do you have to ask Mark? Uh, because there's a lot more I could ask him, but, you know, we, oh, we, we can't do well, this all day. I, exactly. I love, I've said it, and I love just how resonant the book is with everything that we talk about with all the profit activators. It's all taking that, you know, outward focus and really thinking about your, your MVPs, your most valuable people who would be your clients here in this situation. What's, what's important to them and really understanding that. Joe, as I'm listening to this, I'm already thinking, um, that we need to do another episode. You know how we do, uh, this will be the one with Mark Thompson, and then we'll do the uh, we'll do the one about being admired because there's so much there that you know we could talk directly about the links. So I would encourage everybody who's listening to this right now to go and and get the book or download it on your Kindle, and then in a few weeks we'll do another episode where we'll talk all about applying. Everything from admired to the to the eight profit activators because that's really 
it, it resonates like almost no other book I've I've seen. And it, was, it, it might be good timing for this because, frankly, I'm going on to the World Business Forum, which is happening soon. I'm going to be there on stage with Richard uh, at the at the forum as the closing keynote. Uh, we're also going to have Jim Collins and Jack Welch there. We're going to have uh, the CEOs of some of the most valuable companies of the in the world, 2,000 people at Radio City Music Hall. So what I'd love to do is have you reach out to your listeners and everyone who's who's who takes uh, this show so seriously as I do and send us questions, send us things that you'd like to hear from these thought leaders about, and we'll ask them at the forum and come back and, and bring you uh, uh, the benefit of that dialogue and, and, and ask them, challenge them with you know, what, what you'd like to hear from Larry Page and from Richard and, and from Jack Welch about what they've done in their businesses that have been able to make them not just uh, successful but sustainably successful for a decade after decade. Um, and so I'd love to have that dialogue going forward because, because, you know, as I said at the beginning here, you guys are my heroes. Everybody who's listening to this program is, has, has the courage and the audacity to, to really want to change the world and, and make a difference and, and have an impact on a business that matters. And that takes a huge amount of courage. And, and you guys are what drive this economy um, in the world. It doesn't, it's, it's not happening from the Fortune 500 companies. It's happening with everyone who listens to this call. You guys are making all the difference in your neighborhoods, your communities, and, and in, in America and in the world. So rock on, guys. It's a real honor to be with you. <laughs> no, no, thank you so much. And, and Mark, how, how would someone actually, uh, how would someone, like, do? we can either do it on I Love Marketing in the comments section, uh, yeah, but I would, yeah. I would love, or do you have a website or any place where you would like people to go to? Yes, well, you can certainly go to uh, Leader Power Tools. It's just L-E-A-D-E-R-P-O-W-E-R-T-O-O-L-S, leaderpowertools.com. Uh, we have a place to do that, and uh, we have a Facebook page called Your Insight, uh, just Your Insight, uh, which we share with American Express and uh, with the Drucker Institute. It's a place where we have – there's over 100 interviews actually there already. Everyone from the Dalai Lama to, to Richard is is on that site. And uh, we'd love to have your comments and ideas and questions, and, and we'll collect those so that we can put them in front of those cool people in the coming weeks. That would be wonderful. So first off, Mark, uh, thank you so much for taking the time uh, while you're on Necker Island to uh, talk about what you know and uh, share with uh, Edmard. Uh, congratulations on all the success with it so far. It's uh, as we're doing this episode of I Love Marketing. It's number one on Amazon, and I, w I think it needs to stay there. So I would like all of our listeners that resonated with what we talked about to go and pick up the book. It will be one of the best investments you can ever make in your future. Uh, you will get a, a deep understanding of many things related to, as Dean mentioned, that are um, very uh, congruent, aligned, and relevant with the eight profit activators. Um, you know, all money earned ethically is a byproduct of value creation. It will really help you in the area of creating value, understanding your, your clients, and just simply, um, you know, giving you more access to all of the things you want in life. And it'll create a better version of you. And so I, I really take <laughs> this book seriously and his message seriously. It's called Admired 21 Ways to Double Your Value, Mark C. Thompson and Bonita S. Thompson. Uh, go get a copy of it right now. 
and let us know what you think about it. After you read it, please co- comment on ilovemarketing.com. And, and Mark, I'd love if you could actually take a picture uh, of Richard Branson and yourself, uh, maybe with Bonita, whatever, uh, any picture of your choosing uh, from Necker Island. Send it to us, and we will post it up on ilovemarketing.com. Oh, great. Uh, okay. You know, so people can see that, because I think that's pretty cool. And, um, yeah, I'm done. So, Dean, anything else you want to share? That's great. Get That's great. Thank and you so tune much. In and we'll talk all about it. Yeah, That's yeah. We'll do. And, and by the way, Mark, on that, we, we, we don't even require you actually having to be there, although we would love to have you on that. We, we will do an episode where we actually talk about the lessons uh, from Admired after all of our listeners actually read the book Sounds and great. Uh, give us some feedback. And then we'll turn it into a, a deeper conversation because, you know, we, we want to continue to go deep with uh, important things. And this is very important. So you're, you're doing awesome stuff. Again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks you guys are doing it. You're making a big difference in the lives and, and the work and the, and the impact of a, of a hell of a lot of people. So thank you for inspiring all of us. Great job, guys. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. I'm going to see uh, Richard within the, the, I guess, maybe a half hour here. So we'll take a picture, send a snap, and, and send our love and hugs to all of you. Perfect. Awesome. Take, you got it. So th- and, and Dean, uh, Dean, uh, sing or something, and then we'll, we'll end this episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. All right, guys. Good night. Take care. Bye-bye.